Psalm 84. This is a psalm written by the sons of Korah, who were praise directors in Israel. Written about days spent at the temple. You see a lot of times when they came to worship God, the Jewish people, they didn't come for a couple of hours on a on Passover or on a special day. They came for the day. They came to worship all day long. And the sons of Korah write, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found the house, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. The bird's in the temple, so we're getting close. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And how blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Lord, we agree with the psalm writers this morning. A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Lord Jesus, I would rather stand at the threshold of, of your house than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, as we approach your house, that we would see beyond the buildings and construction of man and right into your heart and your desire and your passion for your people. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us and be our teacher. This morning as we study the Word, but each day as we walk. Spirit of Jesus, be our Rabbi. I pray for the blessing of your teaching. Whether we're hiking trails or riding bikes or walking in the mall or out running errands or sitting in our homes, I pray that even in the most simple things, you would be our teacher, Holy Spirit. Day in and day out. Teach us what it means to walk with you and to dwell in your courts perpetually. For we know that in your presence, Lord Jesus, there is peace and there is joy and there is grace.
thank you, Lord. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Even standing on the southern steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem has a thrill that's hard to describe. There's ancient steps that are worn down and really don't go into the Temple Mount now. If you walk all the way up to the top of them, you just run into a wall on the southern side. But just to be there and to think about what it must have been like on one of those glorious days when all the people flooded into Jerusalem and came to the Temple for worship. And what the Temple meant to the people, what an awesome thing it was, crossing the hills of Judea to get that first glimpse, especially if you were coming from the east side. As you approach Jerusalem, the anticipation and the enthusiasm of the people as, as all of their excitement for who they were welled up. This, this one symbol up there, this temple. How fantastic, how wonderful, and how tragic. But they couldn't feel that way all the time. You know, the people of Israel are not unlike you and, and me. And how we feel sometimes, and I don't know if you're this way, but when I come down the path on Sunday mornings and I get my first glimpse of the barn, I get a thrill. I get a tickle inside. Oh, what's he going to do today? What's going to happen? You know, I get so excited anticipating the whole body being in one place together. I love that. Why should it be any different when I wake up Monday morning, roll out of bed, and begin the day driving my kids to the bus stop? Why don't I feel that, that same thrill? I want to. Not for the bus stop. But for Jesus. For being in the presence of our Lord. You see, one thing the people of Israel, I'm totally getting ahead of myself, but one thing that the people of Israel seemed to miss very quickly once the temple was constructed was the fact that they could be with God anytime, anywhere, that God is not limited to a temple or a church or a barn. God is not limited. And it's His intention to invade every single aspect of our lives and to be with us. A thought which in and of itself is pretty stunning. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 6 this morning and I invite you to turn over there now. And it's interesting, last night it struck me after having done this study and prepared and and worked through it this week, we're going to study the temple, the building of the temple. And and I realized that about three, four weeks ago, when we studied 1 Chronicles 22, we talked about principles for building based on the temple. And it was all in a very positive light. And I realized after this study that there were a lot of things that, as you'll see, are a little upsetting. Or not as positive. And I thought, oh no, am am I now going to contradict everything that I said four weeks ago? I don't think so. I went back and looked at those notes. Because four weeks ago we talked about David's preparation for the temple. And this week we're going to talk about the actual building of the temple. And I think you're going to see where some things began, surprisingly, to go awry. I didn't begin this study thinking we're going to pick out all the negative things about Solomon and his temple. I actually began this study excited because I've been wanting to study the building of the first temple in Jerusalem. But I ran into some things and I'll share them with you this morning. Verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 6. 
Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Building the house of the Lord. In ancient times, the first truly exquisite architecture to emerge was not in homes or businesses or art galleries or shopping malls. Great architecture began with the building of great temples. And we can go back archaeologically and see the Egyptian temples in the Valley of the Kings. The ancient temples in Babylon. The ziggurats of Mesopotamia. The Parthenon in Greece. The Temple of Jupiter in Rome and many others scattered throughout the world. And each of these places were built as residences for the gods. Little g. Buildings that would house the gods of the people. But they truly believed their gods lived in those buildings. Now... The temple of Solomon was similar in architecture to many of these. In fact, if you do a comparison, there were other temples built that as far as the three-room layout of the temple of Solomon, these are seen earlier than the temple of Solomon. So there's similarities there that are interesting to compare, but there's a completely different purpose with the temple in Jerusalem than all other temples that were built before. And that is simply this. It was not a house for the dwelling place of God. God did not live there. Now Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Acts chapter 7 verse 46. Stephen is preaching from the temple complex. And he's, he's dealing with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And the Herodian priest, and he says, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Now we have a footstool in our house. It's got a little rooster on it. You know, it's embroidered. It's got a little metal feet. And that's where we put our feet. It's not the place we're sitting. Hayden sits on it because it fits you know, his height pretty well. But none of the rest of us do. That's where our feet goes. And that's what the earth is for God. And so to think that you could build a temple or a church and God would just house himself there and limit himself to that one place is as silly as saying, I'm going to move into my footstool. I'm going to reside there. The earth is a footstool for his feet. What kind of house, the prophet says, will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You might say, well, wait a minute. Didn't the Lord direct David in the plans for the temple? And didn't he approve of the temple after it was built? After all, in the first temple anyway, the Bible tells us, and we'll see this in a couple of chapters, God's Shekinah glory actually entered into the temple. In an amazing, amazing display of His power and His presence. And it's true that God did approve the temple. That He did allow David's designs to go forward and Solomon to build it. But don't miss this defining statement. In 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, Solomon says, He will build the house for my name. 
So he got so big, the house of Israel, that the temple there would be a house for his name. A house for the recognition of God. Not a house that God would be limited to. It wasn't a house in which God would be contained. Again, it was a house for the name of the Lord. A place where people could go gather and call upon Hashem, the name. Which is what a Jewish person, even today an Orthodox Jew, will not say God, will not speak the name of God. They'll say Hashem, which simply means the name. And they could go to the temple and call out the name of the Lord. Look over in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon is praying his great prayer of dedication. And again, we'll come back in a few weeks and study this. But he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day. Toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. To listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. This wasn't God's home. It wasn't a house that would contain Him. It was a meeting place. Where the people of Israel could draw near to God, listen, they could come close to God, don't miss this, on the basis of sacrifice. Before even entering the temple, on the outside of the temple sat the altar not in the holy place not in the holy of holies but outside where the sacrifices would happen for a blood covering before anyone priest or high priest could enter into the temple blood was continually shed in that place on a daily uh, daily basis the sacrifices occurred in the temple and it said on Passover that the blood in the temple courtyard ran ankle deep that's a lot of blood I mean, if you can even imagine (laughs) that much blood. It took that much blood, actually far more, for the people even to approach God. The smoke of the sacrifices constantly would rise up from the temple before God. Why? Because God is perfect. He is spotless, and we are not. And something was required to bridge that gap. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement that is covering to your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And we've talked about this before. That the Jewish people could come to the temple, they could worship God, and they could receive through the sacrifices covering for their sins. Not a washing of their sins, but a covering of their sins. So that they could approach the Lord. Until Messiah would come, the temple served as the place of meeting. Where the people, covered by sacrifice, could call on the name. What about after Messiah? Well, after Jesus came, you and I know things are very different. We are no longer covered by the blood. We are completely washed by the blood. Faith in Jesus Christ means that we don't continue daily offering sacrifices at a temple in hopes that maybe the sins of this day will be covered or the sins of yesterday that were missed would be covered. We know that in Jesus Christ we have absolute cleansing. The word is propitiation. It means erasure from all our sins. 1 John 1, seven. John says if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. But in the days of the temple, 
It was the place where the people could go and know at least that their sins were covered so that they could approach the name of God. Now the study of the temple is one of the most fascinating studies in scripture. As I said, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, we're going to talk about three things, focus in on three things as we go through the chapter this morning. And here they are, I'll give them to you ahead of time. The conception of the temple, the conception of the temple, the construction of the temple, and finally we'll get to the crisis of the temple. The conception of the temple, the construction of the temple, and number three, the crisis of the temple. Number one, the construction or the conception of the temple. Don't forget that the concept, the idea, the desire was born in the heart of David. That's where we see it take place. David gets this sense, this thought, I've got a house, a beautiful house, I've got a palace. And God is still dwelling in a tent. At least the Ark of the Covenant is there, and His glory is there, and we've got to, we've got to have more. We've got to have something special, and he gets it in his mind to build a temple. And God says, you can't build me a temple, David. You have too much blood on your hands. The blood of war. You're a warrior. And if anyone's going to build a temple, it's going to be a man of peace. And so Shlomo, <laughs> Solomon, comes along as that man of peace. But although God would not let David build the temple, the concept for a permanent place in Israel, rather than that mobile tabernacle, was formed in David's heart. First Chronicles chapter 28. First Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 1, is David's address about the temple. He, he says, it says, Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king, and the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons with the officials and the mighty men and even all the valiant men. And then King David rose to his feet and he said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Down in verse 19, it says, All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So the conception of the temple began there in the heart of David. But I wonder when it was all said and done, how much of the plans for the temple were from David and how much were truly impressed by the Lord. How much of the ideas of what it would look like and what would be contained within, how much of that was David rather than the Lord himself. And after David died, how much of the plans were altered by Solomon in his construction of the temple? How many change orders were submitted during the process of building? And I said, well, Rick, I mean, God told David to build the temple, right? Wrong. God did not tell David to build the temple. David came up with the idea all on his own. The design... The desire, they were conceived in David's heart and the actual construction was carried out by Solomon. And I'm just asking the question to ask. In fact, this is a question that came up in my mind after I had finished my study. How much of the temple was of God's design and how much was man's? 
I think you'll see why as we go forward. Number two in our list, the construction of the temple. Let's take a few moments and look at this. The construction of the temple. Again in verse 1, it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is in the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. I read that again to point out that this is a critical verse used in archaeological dating. It is so specific that archaeologists have used this to determine timelines and even as they went into digs in Israel and in Jerusalem and around the surrounding areas they would use this verse to try and determine some things and as it turns out historically this verse is perfectly accurate and helps archaeologists in figuring out when things happened as they happened. Well, verse 2 going on says, As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, and its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. It's exactly double the size of the tabernacle. The point, except in height, in width around its, and length. It's double the size of the tabernacle. The porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the length of the house, and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits, also for the house he made windows with artistic frames and against the wall of the house he built stories encompassing the walls of the house both around both the nave and the inner sanctuary thus he made side chambers all around the lowest story was five cubits wide the middle story was six cubits wide and the third was seven cubits wide for on the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house. Now if you're into construction, maybe that makes sense to you. As we look at this, we realize the temple of Solomon, built for the name of God, was actually not very big. By today's standards, it wouldn't have been a huge edifice, a large temple, 90 by 30 by 45 feet. 45 feet high, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, similar to a 2,700 square foot home. That was the size of the temple. That may surprise some of you. It did me. I had always imagined the temple being so much bigger. Now, the complex on which the temple was built was rather large. In fact, the Temple Mount is 35 acres. But the temple itself was rather small by comparison to what we would consider large churches today. But the temple, though not huge, was stunning. It was absolutely beautiful. There were three primary materials in the construction of the temple. There was white limestone, quarried from three places in and around Jerusalem, cedar wood from the cedars of Lebanon, and pure gold from what Second Chronicles 3.6 tells us is a place called Parvaim. Parvaim, which just means the country of gold, and they're not sure exactly where that was. But they know that the temple was made of white limestone, cedar wood, and pure gold. Consider these building materials. The first building material is that white limestone. It's also called Jerusalem stone. And if you go to Jerusalem today, it's what the city is built out of. City ordinances mean even new buildings have to be built from that Jerusalem stone. And so when you approach the city, it has a wonderful white look to it in the stone itself. Now I shared this a few weeks back that the shaping process in the quarry was so exact that when the stones finally were brought up to the Temple Mount, itself an amazing feat, they slid quietly into place without the use of hammer, axe, or chisel. They were perfect. It was all perfectly planned out down in the quarry. 
You couldn't fit a razor blade in between those stones. And if you enter in the rabbi's tunnel running along the western wall of the temple today and go down there deep underground, you can see original stones that Solomon placed. It's amazing. That white limestone. You may recall, you Bible students, that these stones weighed upwards of 40 to 100 tons. Our best machinery can lift three, four, maybe five tons. How did they do it? No one has a clue. But none of the preparation work was done on site at the Temple Mount. Look at verse 7. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone prepared at the quarry. And none, and, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. I love this verse, and I actually have used this example many times in the past. It's a reminder that the hard work happens in the quarry. The, the, the stress and the strain and the chipping away and the sweating and the shaping all happen in the quarry. And let this be a reminder to us that earth is the quarry. That we live, our lives are in the quarry, not on the temple. In the quarry, this is where we're being shaped, where our faith is being grown. It's hard. Sometimes painful. It's, it's a strain at times. Paul says even though earth itself, Romans chapter 8, groans in expectation. This is not where heaven happens. This is not the place of our retirement. So if life is hard for you, praise the Lord. You're in the quarry. And He's doing something to you, shaping you, forming you for that time when we will slide effortlessly, perfectly into place in heaven before Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so we shouldn't have an expectation that this life is going to be all that. Now praise God, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of life. He does give good things, and He does bless us. And we have wonderful days as much as we have difficult days. But don't forget, the perspective I believe is so important for those who walk in Christ. That we're in the quarry, and the work is being done, the preparation. The day is coming... And it's almost here when all the quarrying will be over. Jesus will come for His own and we will slide into place established in the Lord. By the way, the Jews have an interesting tradition. There was a unique stone that was quarried during the building of the first temple. The story is told that this stone was sent up to the temple mount, but those who received it weren't sure where it went. And they looked and studied and tried to figure and they, they, they couldn't find the place for this particular stone and so they pushed it out to the edge of the Temple Mount and rolled it off down into the Cadron Valley where it landed among some bushes and was pretty much forgotten. Later, when they were ready to set the cornerstone of the temple, they sent word down to the quarry, send it up. And those down in the quarry said, we did send it up. And they realized, the rejected stone. That was the cornerstone. And so they went down into the Cadron Valley and with quite a bit of effort got the cornerstone and brought it back up and set it in place in the temple. Bible students, this, this may ring a bell with you because Jesus said in Matthew 21.42 Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118 verse 2. 
Therefore, Jesus says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Peter restates that exact same verse in his sermon in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. That the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. In a letter, Peter repeats it again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, You have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected, in whom the whole building fitting together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Which, by the way, indicates what God is really into when it comes to building. Read on. 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 8. It tells us the doorway for the lowest side of the chamber was on the right side of the house. So they would go up by winding stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. And so he made a house and finished it and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. He also built the stories against the whole house, each five cubits high, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Now, this is interesting to me. This is not before the building. This is not after the building. This is in the middle of the construction of the temple, which we'll see took seven and a half years. During the construction, suddenly God speaks up. Suddenly he speaks to Solomon. And what does he say? Solomon, the beam on the left side of the temple is not quite where I'd like it. Could you shift to the right a tad? Solomon, the design on the front of the house, you need to change that. When we were building our house, and Niccolo Bruno was our, our builder, I walked into the house one day when it was all framed up, and I looked into the living room, and you discover some things. You discover when you're building a house how important the blueprints really are. And I learned that it's hard to think through things when you're just looking at pieces of paper. Sometimes you have to see them. And what I saw when I walked into the living room was our fireplace was off to the right. In kind of a bizarre place. And I looked at the blueprints and the fireplace was off to the right and the blueprints. Hadn't even noticed it until it was built in. And I had to say, Nicolo, um, we need to change that. And by the way, what's that going to cost me? <laughs> and he shifted it back. And so you would think in the middle of the building process, if the Lord speaks up, it's going to be about the building of the temple, right? Wrong. Verse 12 says, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. How interesting. It's not move the beams, shift what you're doing, change the design. It's, I'm more interested in building you, Solomon, than in building this house. I want to build you. I want to be in the middle of my people Israel to build on them. This is God's heart in this building process. To build on Solomon. He's not so much concerned with the building of the temple itself. Now, the second building material was hardwood from the cedars of Lebanon. It says in verse 14, So Solomon built the house and finished it. And then he built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. 
From the floor of the house to the ceiling, he overlaid the walls on the inside with wood, and he overlaid the floors of the house with boards of cedar. He built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them for it on the inside as an inner sanctuary, even as the most holy place. The house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. There was cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers, and all was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. Wall-to-wall cedar, which must have smelled really good. These are the cedars of Lebanon. We talked about this on Wednesday a a bit. They were massive hardwood trees. They were known for withstanding wood rot and decay and repelling insects. It was a great wood for building. Solomon first built the outside with that white Jerusalem stone. Powerful, strong, firm, set in place, dug in. But on the inside was wall-to-wall cedar. But that's not how it remained. The third building material was gold. Watch this, verse 19. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary. That's going to be the Holy of Holies. Within the house, in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in width, 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. What did he overlay with pure gold? The whole thing. Walls, floors, ceiling was pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. And so Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary. And he overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the the whole altar which was by the inner sanctuary. This would be the altar of incense. He overlaid that with gold. Gold everywhere. And I shared three or four weeks ago that the gold amounted to 100,000 talents or 3,000 tons of gold was used in the inside of the temple. Gold everywhere. Pure, solid gold amounting today by today's standard of $930 an ounce. $82 billion worth of gold alone went into the temple. Incredible. Can you imagine walking in there how brilliant it would have been? Just the light of the lampstand against that gold would have been absolutely stunning. But it didn't stop at the, the stone and the cedar and the gold structure. Solomon went a little bit further. Second Chronicles chapter 4 describes this. You can go and check that on your own time. But in addition to the building and the construction of the temple itself, Solomon made a few additions to the furniture. Now, you may recall that in the tabernacle there were seven pieces of furniture. When you walked into the tabernacle, the first thing you saw was the bronze labor. The second thing you saw was the bronze altar. Then you went into the holy place, and to the left side was the lampstand that held those seven lamps. On the right side was the table of showbread, both of those made of gold. And straight in front would be the altar of incense right up against the veil. Go around the veil and you come into the place that held the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that was the mercy seat. Seven pieces of furniture. But it wasn't quite enough for Solomon. So in addition to the, to the single golden menorah of the tabernacle, which by the way was huge. Very tall. It wasn't just a little candle stand. It, was, it probably stood maybe higher than that from, from the floor to my hand. 10, 12 feet. It was a big lampstand, but it wasn't enough. So in addition to that, Solomon had ten more lampstands, five on either side, lining the holy place. 
In addition to the single table of showbread, Solomon added ten more tables of showbread, five on either side, again lining the holy place. He commissioned a new bronze altar to be built, a three-tiered bronze altar that was massive, that replaced the original. The priest literally could walk up onto the altar platform. It was huge. And, if that weren't enough, instead of the smaller bronze sea, or bronze labor, where they did the ceremonial washing in the tabernacle, Solomon built a new one the size of a swimming pool. It held 15,000 plus gallons of water and the bronze sea, this massive bowl, sat on 12 bronze oxen. Thankfully with their faces facing out. (laughs) Three on each side facing out. Bronze oxen, which I'm reading about this and I'm thinking, that kind of bothers me. It's kind of weird. Bronze oxen in the temple holding up this labor of washing but wait there's even more than that verse 23 going on says he also in the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood each ten cubits high now a cubit's about a foot and a half so we're talking about 15 foot high angels cherubim it tells us in verse 24 five cubits was one wing of the cherub and five cubits was the other wing of the cherub so seven and a half foot wings on either side 15 feet from wingtip to wingtip of these cherubs okay and it says that the uh, other cherub was ten cubits both the cherubim were the same measure and the same form the height of the one cherub was ten cubits and so was the other cherub wants to make that clear to us and then in verse 27 he placed the cherubim in the midst of the inner house that is in the holy of holies And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that one wing of one was touching the one wall and the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall and their wings were touching each other in the center of the house. He also overlaid the cherubim with gold. So these two massive 15 foot tall cherubim stood in the Holy of Holies overarching the Ark of the Covenant underneath. All in all, the temple construction and design was absolutely breathtaking. And we're told in verse 29 that he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. He overlaid the floor of the house with gold, inner and outer sanctuaries. From the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood, the lintel, the five-sided doorposts. He made two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold. And he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the nave four-sided doorposts of olive wood and the two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door turned on pivots and the two leaves of the other door turned on pivots. And he carved on it cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the engraved work. He built the inner court with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. That's April, May time frame. It's the second month of the year on the Hebrew calendar. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. Literally, if you go month to month, it was seven and a half years. Now again... When you get through all of that and read what went into the inner construction of the temple, there are some surprises there. 
Ten lampstands. Ten tables of showbread. Two big cherubims. Gold flowers and gold cherubs and, and gold... What was the other thing? Palm trees. All throughout in incredible carvings and engravings, all covered with gold. It was absolutely breathtaking. And I read this and I began to feel uncomfortable. It wasn't like the study of the tabernacle, which by the way, we spent 13 weeks studying the tabernacle. We're going to spend one morning on the temple. Why is that? Well, the tabernacle, piece by piece, design by design, even down to the very threads used and the coverings used on the Ark of the Covenant, speak of Jesus in incredible ways. I encourage you, go back and listen to the studies through Exodus. Exodus 25 through about 36. And see how it was all put together and how these things portray and point us to and picture Jesus Christ. But the temple, J. Vernon McGee said when he started to do a comparison, he wrote a book about the tabernacle and how it pointed to Jesus. And he said when he started to write a book about the temple, it was too complex. There was too much to it. He said he threw up his hands, he was just overwhelmed by it. The temple was built... And it truly was a temple complex. Much more complex than the tabernacle before it. Which leads us to the third point this morning, the crisis of the temple. For you see, after just 374 years, on a shocking date in Hebrew history, the ninth day of the month of Av, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's armies destroyed and burned down Solomon's temple, the temple for the name. Now in 515 B.C., the second temple was finished under the guidance of Zerubbabel. Although the older men who remembered Solomon's temple wept when they saw it because it was nothing of the glory of Solomon's temple. While the young men applauded because at least there was a temple built back up on the Temple Mount. It was enlarged by Herod in a massive retrofitting renovation beginning in about 20 B.C. and and continuing all the way through the life of Jesus. It wasn't even completed during Jesus' life. They were still working on it. But again, on the 9th of Av in 70 A.D., the same day, 9th of Av that had happened in 586, now in 70 A.D., the temple is destroyed again by Titus and the Romans. Why? Were the enemies of God just too strong? Were they just too powerful and overwhelming for the Lord to protect the house for His name? We have to assume, in fact the Bible tells us clearly, that not only did God allow these crises to take place, He ordained them. He invited the enemies of His name and the enemies of His people to destroy the temple. Why would He do that? Because even back when we look at the building of the temple, a crisis began. And it was a crisis of faith. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1. As we read this, understand that the very thing God called Solomon to in the middle of the building of the temple is the reason for the crisis. The very desire of God's heart. The Lord warned, hey, if you build this temple, just remember, in essence, remember me. 
Remember our relationship. Remember what really matters. It's building you, Solomon. It's building you, my people, Israel. Don't get too caught up in this temple. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Now this happened pre-586 B.C., before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Lord says, Jeremiah, I want you to go to the temple and stand in the gateway. And proclaim this, verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, and if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your forefathers forever and ever. Behold, you are not behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. What were the deceptive words? The deceptive words were from false prophets saying the temple will stand. See the threat of Nebuchadnezzar was already there, but they were saying the temple will stand. You know, he may destroy other parts of Israel. He's not going to destroy Jerusalem. We have the temple. <laughs> we have the talisman. We have the big rabbit's foot. It's not going to be destroyed. <laughs> We're safe. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Verse 9, he says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery? Swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered! That you may do all these abominations? Are you telling me you can live out there however you want, but when you come in here, suddenly everything's cool between us? Like out there doesn't really happen? Has this house, verse 11, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Jesus would quote that later. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called to you, but you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. Well, what happened at Shiloh? Archaeological studies reveal that in Shiloh, the original location of the tabernacle, where the first people came into the land and they set the tabernacle up, that in Shiloh there was a massive attack probably by the Philistines in 1050 B.C. At the tail end of the time of the judges, Shiloh was overrun and completely obliterated. Psalm 78 verse 56 says, They tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. For they revoked Him with their high places and aroused His jealousy with their graven images. And when God heard, He was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel. So He abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which He had pitched among them, and gave up His strength to captivity and His glory into the hand of the adversary. 
Psalm 78, verses 56 through 61. Back in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23, the Lord says, Behold, this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. Then you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I commanded you. Walk in the way. Remember that phrase. It is the key verse throughout First and Second Kings. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is what God declares and commands. Walk in my way. Walk in my way. He says, if you walk in my way, verse 23, it, will, it may be well with you. Verse 24, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward, not forward. Over in chapter 9 of Jeremiah, verse 1 says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep night and day for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go for them. For all of them are adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. I read those two verses to you because it's interesting. It parallels the Lord saying, Oh, that I had eyes for a fountain of tears. And Jesus did. Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he cried out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You see, people look at God today, and they shake the fist, and they blame Him, and they they turn away from Him, and they don't realize He is weeping over them. That the heart of God is to mankind to say, I want to gather you in. I want you close to my heart. I don't want what you've chosen for yourself. I want you to walk in the way that I've chosen because it's a good way. It's a happy way. It's a joyous way. But but you would have none of it. Matthew 23:38, Jesus cried out, "Behold, your house is being left to you desolate." For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jeremiah 7-9, through 9, scholars call it the temple sermon. And before the destruction of the first temple, God sent warning saying, Please turn back to me, walk in my way, or you're going to lose everything. And in fact, they didn't turn back, so the temple was destroyed. Before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, in fact, 35, 36 years before that, Jesus cried out, Jerusalem, if you would listen and turn back from your ways, the inevitable wouldn't be happening, but it's coming. And in fact, just as Jesus prophesied, in AD 70, the temple was destroyed that second time. The Lord is saying very clearly, you can't come in here to worship me as though your life outside is a separate thing. The Jewish people did it. We do it all the time. What I do around my Christian brothers and sisters, how I act, how I live, how I behave, what I even think about, when I'm in that barn on Sunday morning, <laughs> glory, glory. But then i got to get back to real life. i got to do my thing. You know, and you know, I, I I find times to pray during the week. You know, when I get a chance over dinner, the Lord says, "I don't just want you to come in here and act one way. I want to walk with you. I want you to walk in the way." This passage in Jeremiah, by the way, is not a rant against the temple. 
It's not that God was saying the temple is a big sinful building. He's saying the people have made the temple something it should never have become. And I believe it started in the conception, in the heart of David. He wanted something that God never asked for. But graciously, God allowed him to go forward with the plans. And then Solomon constructed something God never asked for. And yet, God graciously would send His glory to fill the house. You know, my kids want me to do things and play through their computer games. Corey wants me to try out. I've never asked for <laughs> And I don't get But I love my son. And so when I play the games or do the things that he likes me to do, it's because of him. Because I want to be with him. So, okay, alright, we'll do I wouldn't choose to do that, but he wants to. So cool, let's do that. What happened? What was the crisis of the temple? They made it a place of religious ritual rather than a place of relational renewal. Let me say that again. They made it a place of religious ritual rather than a place of uh, relational renewal. Relationship was traded out for religion. And that's what Solomon did. Vast difference between Solomon and David. David was a relational guy, a man after God's own heart. Man, he loved the Lord, he walked with the Lord, and even when he blew it, it still was all about relationship, and so God loved him. Solomon comes along, and he loves the Lord, but it's a religious love. And so he does what he does out of religion. David's relationship with God outlasted his sin. Solomon's religious connection to God fell under the weight of his sin. And that's always the way it is. Religion will never bear you up. Religion will never give you the strength to walk in this life. Religion will never last. It falls apart. Relationship changes us. The presence of the Lord in our lives alters our behavior. Not because we feel like we're under the thumb, but because, hey, I'm with God. I'm walking with Jesus, and I want Him to be happy. It thrills me when He's pleased. Which is a totally different motivation for living my life as a child of God. The people of Judah had a religious attachment to the temple. Truly believing that the temple itself was going to ward off enemy attack. Both in 586 B.C. and in 70 A.D. Both times we have writings and evidence that the people were saying, Destruction can't come to Jerusalem. We have the temple. That's religion. Religion is assuming that salvation comes by the work of our hands. The salvation is attached to something that we have done. Again, the temple was conceived in the mind of man. Yes, by a man after God's own heart, but the idea still came from man nonetheless. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. David said, or the Lord said to David in response to David's desire, He said, I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Don't miss what God is saying here. He's saying, I prefer the tabernacle. It's nice that you want to build me a house, David, but I like the tabernacle. In other words, God would rather camp than settle. Why? Because when he camped in the tabernacle, it was anywhere the people went, God was there. At least, at least the place of worship was right there. In the midst of the people, everywhere they went. But once you build me a house, God's saying, 
And it's in only one place in all of Israel, and the, half, and the people have to come there. And they'll think they have to come there, instead of me just going wherever they are. It was conceived in the mind of man. It was constructed by the hands of man. But listen, not by spirit-filled men. There's a big difference between the tabernacle and the temple. And we could spend the whole day looking at differences between the two. But in Exodus 31, we're told the tabernacle was artfully constructed by two men. Bezalel and Aholiab. Bezalel and Aholiab were artisans and God said, I have put my spirit into them. The tabernacle gang was constructed by spirit-filled men. The Temple of Solomon was not. In fact, as we'll see in our study this Wednesday night, chapter 7 in 1 Kings tells us that Solomon hires a man named Hiram, who is a half-Jew, half-Gentile from the land of Tyre, a well-known artist to come in and construct or artfully design the inside of the temple. He wasn't even a full Jew, and he wasn't a spirit-filled man. So while the tabernacle was built by spirit-filled men, the temple was constructed by the hands of man. Now I remind you of a verse that I hope we get in our heads a lot over the coming months. Psalm 127 verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. That doesn't mean the people who put hammers to nails. It means those who design it and prepare it. Are they spirit-filled, spirit-led? Well, the temple was entered into crisis when it began to matter more than the name itself mattered. Now, listen to me closely here. We're almost done. I am convinced that the Lord preferred the tabernacle for two simple reasons. Simplicity and immediacy. Simplicity and immediacy. He was immediately present with the people and the tabernacle was simple. It was simple. You know what was lost in the temple that you see in the tabernacle design? The cross. What do you mean by that? If you look from overhead down uh, an aerial view of the tabernacle, what you see is altar, brazen altar. No, laver, altar. Go inside and you see on one side the uh, lampstand, on the other side the table of showbread, and then the altar of incense, and then the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. The furniture was seven pieces simply laid out in the shape of a cross. But you get into the temple and that's all gone because now you got ten lampstands and you got ten tables of showbread and you got two massive cherubim and there's no picture there at all of the cross. The simplicity of the tabernacle gets lost for the complexity of the temple and that's religion. Religion says one lampstand just isn't enough. We've got to have ten. One table of showbread, it's not enough. We've got to have ten. The mercy seat is not enough. We need big honking cherubim to overarch this thing monstrously high because we've got to have a greater sense of glory. Religion says the things of the Lord's design, prayer and the word, ministry and service, the church, these things need our help. And so we come along and and try and come up with more effective words and formulas and paradigms and designs and we say, we're just adding to what God has given us. Because what God has given us, frankly, gang, it's rather simple-minded. You know, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, well, that's great, but what about the grand programs? I mean, we can add so much to what God has said. And gang, that's where religion enters in. 
And that was the problem in the temple. It wasn't the temple itself. It was the fact that the people became so religiously connected to it that they became distant from God. When my spiritual life begins to get complicated, I'm not walking in the direction of the Father. I am walking in the direction of my flesh. But the moment I turn back toward God in simplicity, it's good. He doesn't call us to work so hard. Are you saying the temple is a bad thing? Not in the least. I'm saying that like the Sabbath, and this is me, this is not scripture, but like the Sabbath, I believe the temple was made for man, not man for the temple. What? I thought the temple was made for God. No, the temple was not made for God. I think I already said that. The temple was made for the name. So that the people, so man could come to the temple, experience the sacrifice, worship God. It was made for that to help man draw near. Man was not made for the temple as though the temple were this great source of protection in and of itself. But rather than draw near, the people, like all people, began to substitute the glory of God for the glory of human work. And that's religion. We were giving an example of religion when we were in Israel. We were there on Shabbat, Sabbath, and they have a little sign that lights up on Shabbat that says Shabbat Elevators. And Cheryl and I, for three or four days leading up to that, we saw the Shabbat Elevator, and I'm like, should we not ride on that because we're not Jewish? What's the deal with the Shabbat Elevator? One time we did ride on it, nothing happened. Well, it wasn't Shabbat. Had we gotten on it on Shabbat, we would have learned what the deal was. The Shabbat Elevator automatically stops at every floor and the doors open. So that the Orthodox Jew doesn't have to push a button and violate the law. That's religion. Isn't that incredible? And they warned us, don't get on the Shabbat elevator on Shabbat. It'll take you a half an hour to get down the building. Because it stops at every floor. And yet, you got to do that. It's adding to and multiplying upon. And it's complication. Dang, there is such incredible complication right now in Israel over even discussions of building the third temple. It's going to happen because Scripture indicates that the third temple exists when Antichrist comes on the scene. But honestly, I have no idea how it's going to happen because in and, in and among themselves, the Jewish people are arguing and debating and, and there's fierce opposition about how this thing is supposed to be built. There are groups of Jews who don't even want it to be built because they believe, as Zechariah says, the Messiah will build it. He will. Not the third one. It's the fourth one, which is a whole different topic for another time. But in all this, I just want you to hear one thing. One phrase from Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Jesus said, I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. What could possibly be greater than the temple in Judaism? The great high priest, Jesus Christ. The Messiah. And that's the whole point. Don't miss the greater than the temple because you're looking at the temple. Don't miss the sweet, simple relationship Jesus invites us into because we're so busy amassing the relics of religion. And we do that in our busyness and we do that in our work. Even in our prayers, we can become ultra-religious. What do you mean? By using religious phraseology that's unnecessary. Jesus said, you're not going to be heard for your many words. Just talk to me. 
I don't want to embarrass him, but I, I told Russ on Friday, I love listening to Russ pray. Why is that? Because he's so simple. I don't mean that as a, as a slap either. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. It's not dressed up. He's got shorts on. <laughs> yes, he does. I see what you mean. Not dressed up, yeah. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that Russ is the picture of holiness because I know Russ and he's not. <laughs> but this is what he's called us to. When God says, be like kids, and I'll tell you one of the reasons I love second service, I love first service because, boy, I feel like we get into it here and we can really study and it's quiet and there's no interruption. Like, yeah, we're in the word. Second service is just, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's just always noise. And Jesus says, but, but I love those kids. And I want you to be like those kids because they're just so simple. They're just so excited to, to be here. Little, little Jaden, I love you. Every Sunday comes up and has to play the drums. You know? I mean, that is church for him right now. That is, that's his temple right there. But God calls us to that simplicity and that relationship. He just wants to walk with you. There are far too many people who won't even enter into prayer because they're not sure what to say. And God says, how about hi? <laughs> Let's start there. Start with a greeting. And then tell me how your day's going. What's going on in your life? What can I help you with? Let's just be together. Man, when it's all said and done, you know Jesus is going to do, with the te- do away with the temple altogether? What's amazing, I will give you this, this little timeline, there will be a third temple built by man coming up, I think, pretty soon. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Jot those down and look at them. Both Daniel and Jesus talk about a temple existing. And Antichrist will come on the scene and defile it. So there has to be a temple there. And it's going to be built by the hands of man. There will be another temple built. Zechariah 6.12 tells us. Jot that down. Zechariah 6.12 says, Mashiach will come and build the kingdom temple. There will be a millennial temple that Jesus is going to build. Interesting. But after the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign of Christ detailed in Revelation chapter 20, when the Lord creates the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, listen to what John says, Revelation 21-22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Wow. Amazing. In other words, when I come to worship God, I don't come into a building. I come into Him. Which I believe is what He invites us to, even now at this point in our lives, to come into the presence of His Spirit and worship and love Him. In the meantime, the temple that He desires to place His name is you. The Bible tells us you are a temple of the Lord. And so, I encourage you, and I think the Lord invites you, to invite Him to dwell in your temple. Let's pray together. Father, what a a fascinating study to look at the temple and its design. And I know there's so much more that we could look at. But I just pray that you will, Lord, impress powerfully upon our hearts that one greater than the temple is here. Lord Jesus, teach us what it means to be a house for the name. To go wherever we go, knowing that you dwell within. 
that your Holy Spirit resides. Jesus, you said you made the promise. We just remind you of your own promise that if we will abide in your word, you and the Father will come and you will abide in our hearts. And so come abide, Lord. Guide us and direct us and make us more like you. In joy and in love and in simplicity. Teach us to be your children in Jesus' name. Amen.